Welcome to Crossing the Floor, your non-partisan guide to politics and law for all Year 11 and 12 students in Western Australia. We come to you from the PC Podcast Studio. I'm Miss Pepper. And I'm Mr Clark O'Reilly. All right, welcome back after a <laughs> quite a long Long, long break at speed now. It's a combination of holidays and various technical, technical difficulties. Lots and lots of technical issues. But yes. I think we know now how to use the no, uh, don't podcast. give away the secrets again. <laughs> um, come on. We've already said that. All right. So uh, we, we thought um, we would start with um, a man who's been making news headlines. And the West is, I think their, their graphic design department's been having a, a great time putting his head on all manner of what, uh, do we have, what do we have this week? We've had uh, the cockroach. Yes. Um, there was a toad. Oh, yes, I've heard point. about the toad. And what was the other one this week? I mean, I, I, I give the West a very, very minor glance most days, so I can't remember what, what he I was often, at the I beginning of this week. I often walk in you watching, uh, going through the horoscope. <laughs> um, so, yes, of course, Clive Palmer has been in the news the last few weeks mm. uh, or, or months, he's been uh, incensed about the WA state government's approach to the coronavirus uh, pandemic and our, our border shutdown. Mm. So perhaps if we wind back a little bit to his his first beef with WA, what what was that all about? Yeah, I've, we've got to go back to May, um, which seems God, seems ages <laughs> and ages ago now. But that's when he was denied entry uh, into WA. Some some would say good riddance. Um, because of because of the hard border that we had, um, uh, had enacted, um, and he basically said, "Look, I've got a right to come. I've got a right to come to Western Australia because I've got these business interests, uh, and I'm over here for political meetings." Um, and at the time, he had actually said he wanted one with um, soon-to-be retiree Matthias Corman. Mm. Um, and basically, what he said, he said, "The border closure itself is a stupid move by the McGowan government." Um, and, and quoting him, he said, uh, what Mr McGowan is trying to do is against the Australian Constitution, and I've got no doubt that the High Court will slap him down very quickly. Um, fast forward to July. Um, uh, basically, it turned out that uh, Mr Palmer himself um, had lodged a writ against the decision in the High Court not to grant him an exemption, um, you know, claiming that the, the West Australian border... Uh, was once again unconstitutional, once again an act of stupidity. So, in terms of unconstitutional, what's where? Where is he going with that? Which section of the constitution is he arguing is at stake? So, I think it goes back to one of the previous um, podcasts when we looked at section ninety-two, which allows for the free movement of people and trade between states. But, but obviously, if we think back to one of those previous podcasts, we would say that there was a high court ruling, I think, in nineteen oh three, that basically said that there can be times in which section ninety-two can be kind of um, call into question if, potentially speaking, the um, goods and services or the trade coming into the country um, or into the state could cause alarm, distress or, or other kind of duress. Um, basically, what he's arguing or what he's contending is that he was denied entry into West Australia for political reasons. That's, that's what he said. Um, and he argues that stopping him from travelling into West Australia is a breach of his constitutional rights. So he's got um, business in WA he needs to attend to. He's got business. Uh, what else has he got? He's got a home in Perth and he is a member of the South Yacht Perth Club. Or sorry, <laughs> the South Perth Yacht Club. 
been a long week. I I think I think Big Bad Clive just wants to get on that yacht of his. This is just a very expensive um, expensive challenge, so that he can he can go for a sail. Perhaps. Absolutely, and I think what's kind of um, what's got the wind in his sail, so to speak, <laughs> um, was uh, very that, well done. <laughs> that he had successfully challenged the Queensland government's decision uh-huh. to. Um, bar him and, and his kind of vintage interests um, back in July 10th and it was kind of Anastasia Palaszczuk had backed down. Um, so he's got what what got one uh, win in his very big belt. He's yes. trying to add another notch. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so bring us up to speed with the, 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 the misgivings of Mr Palmer this week. Well, I mean, I don't want to go into that for, for Clive, but... Um, there has the WA Parliament this week has passed some some legislation that uh, look I think it could potentially um, be problematic in terms of the separation of powers mm. and the rule of law. So um, while 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 I, I do think our our government is doing a really great job, I'm not sure about this legislation that they've passed. So um, Clive among other things, also has had a, there's been a long-running dispute over an iron ore project in the Pilbara region of WA. Um, the damages for which the WA government estimates are up to $30 billion. Now, to give you a bit of uh, context for what $30 billion looks like, that is our state's annual budget. Wow. So... Um, How many yachts can you buy? <laughs> is, have you got the... <laughs> yeah, I don't have the um, the, the, the yacht... The, the number of yachts that $30 billion could buy, but I assume it's many. Um, McGowan has warned that if the state, state government loses it, lost that case or loses this case, um, it would mean uh, it could bankrupt the state, which would mean mass closures of hospitals, schools, police stations, you know, huge flow-on effect. So what the state government has done has passed legislation, um, or state parliament, sorry, not Mm. state government, parliament makes laws. They've um, passed laws that block the arbitration. So this is the the dispute that Palmer has had with the state government. And um, that legislation uh, blocks any liability by the state of WA. Sorry, am I right in thinking that this is also retrospectively? Yes, potentially it's it's a retro. It could also um, tap into that issue of lawmaking. You know, mm. laws should not be retrospective. Yeah. Um, you know, I suppose in terms of this issue, um, important to note that it's it's ongoing. We don't know mm. the outcome of any of these challenges um, by Clive, um, but at the moment the bill has passed. It has become law. It, it passed. Um, I think through state parliament by it was about ten thirty p.m. when it got through the legislative council, and they uh, quickly sent it straight down to uh, Bomber Beasley down at Government House. <laughs> he was he was waiting up. Uh, I, I think he'd, he'd hadn't put his PJs on yet. He was waiting for uh, for them to head down, and he gave that um, Bill Royal assent. And um, so, look, I think potential issues there with natural justice. Um, I suppose lack of scrutiny of legislation. Absolutely. Did the, the, the opposition make an attempt to have a bit more scrutiny, a bit more accountability of this particular piece of legislation and kind of brushed aside? They did. Um, they did. Quigley, the Attorney-General, 
claimed that there is too much at risk for all Western Australians for Namby Pamby inquiries. Namby Pamby, I love that. So look, um, you know, ultimately we don't want our state bankrupted by Clive Palmer, but these these um, issues in terms of the passing of this legislation that you know starts to put the mm. legislative arm of government um, in the territory of the judiciary as well mm. or, or removing powers, you know, in terms of that arbitration, I think are absolutely problematic. So uh, watch this space and, and we'll see what how Clive goes. All right. Now, next more very exciting thing that happened over the holidays, which was quite a while ago now, is the release <laughs> of the, the Palace Letters. Um, and um, this was after a, some uh, high court challenge by historian Jenny Hocking. Um, what was the, what's the, what, why did it go to the high court? What is the challenge regarding? So these, these are letters that were between um, Buckingham Palace mm-hmm. and Sir John Kerr. Uh, they're sort of penned between 1974 and 1977. So just before and just after the constitutional crisis, yeah? Yeah, uh, and they had been locked up and labelled as private documents, so not available to the public under a freedom of information request. Right. So normally that's a, co- a correspondence between, say, a Governor-General and Buckingham Palace um, that is penned on a official basis about government business. We don't get access to that, you know, a week after it's mm. sent to the Queen, but we, we do generally get access to that um, after a period of time has elapsed. Um, a bit like cabinet documents that, you know, are usually released about 30 years after they were um, first first written. So um, Jenny Hocking had applied to um, look at these letters that Kerr had had, had a back and forth with um, the palace but had been denied and she... Um, took a challenge all the way to the High Court because she said, actually, these these are not private documents. They were they were penned in in the uh, performance of the Governor General's official duties mm-hmm. um, as the head of government. So we got them. We we we've now got twelve hundred odd pages of uh, of juicy goss. Juicy goss. I'm 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 just trying to think. What would be? Was there anything that's been disclosed that was that kind of juicy or? I mean, what look, was in there? what was in there? Um, I mean, uh, fun fact, I don't know if you ever knew that Prince Charles was a possible contender for Governor-General. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, turns out probably the the biggest or one of the biggest issues with him not being appointed Governor-General was his lack of um, a lady friend to, to take Is to all the so? official parties. I thought it was the fact that he probably had to be Australian. <laughs> well, No. No, no, it's, uh, he um, the the queen was was not not on on board with that um, with that proposal, and uh, from what I can understand, uh, Charles was proposed to be the replacement for for Kerr. Mm. So anyway, it would have been a really interesting time had uh, had old Charlie come come to Australia and absolutely represented history, Mummy. History could have been very different. Mm. So, uh, do you want to give us a quick? brief rundown of what all of this is is linked to and and what the dismissal is and because some of the listeners wouldn't necessarily be up to that particular part of the year 12 course and obviously the year 11s may have may have kind of touched upon it in previous years but wouldn't be a huge component so can we just remind people of what we're dealing with absolutely so um in terms of 
uh, relevance to the syllabus, um, particularly at year 11 level when we're talking about the role of um, the Governor General when we're thinking about the legislative, executive and judiciary. Um, and then at year 12, when we're looking particularly at the role and power of the Governor General, mm -hmm. and then in unit four, it's all about accountability. So this is a good one because it does transcend both unit three and four. Yeah, this is an important one. Very important. Uh, and so it relates to probably one of the most exciting periods in our political history um, when the Governor General acted on uh, his reserve powers, which are not specifically stated in the constitution mm. in terms of that they are reserve powers as such it's a convention which the, the powers of the governor general that are deemed to be reserve um but he he used them and he sacked the prime minister gough whitlam on the 11th of november 1975. so sacked a prime minister who, who hadn't lost the confidence of the house still had a majority in the house yes in fact on the day that he was sacked by Gough, uh, by um, Sir John Kerr, Gough Whitlam went back to the House of Representatives and they passed a motion of confidence mm. in him as Prime Minister. Unfortunately for Gough, it was too late. He'd been sacked and um, Sir John Kerr had already had instated Malcolm Fraser as uh, the Prime Minister, Fraser being the leader of the opposition at that point. So a very controversial yeah. uh, breaking with convention. Yeah. So obviously there's a, a huge number of reasons why this came about but that'll probably be a discussion for another time yes um let's delve into what these letters actually show what has been um announced from the disclosure of these letters so the, the i suppose what everyone has been looking for in the letters is the extent to which uh the palace and the queen knew what was going on um in australia at the time politically and the extent to which perhaps advice was given about whether it was appropriate to sack a prime minister. So you know, the palace is meant to be very much apolitical. Mm. Um, and so to what extent did they perhaps breach those those boundaries? Mm. Um, and I think that I think that's a vital point to, to try and reinforce. And obviously coming from the, the UK, you know, the monarch is meant to be at all times apolitical. And I think it's probably even more important in Australia because she doesn't reside here. So she really shouldn't you know interfere or intrude upon you know the, the 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 process of of forming government or you know running the country in any way shape or form yes absolutely so look i think um on the 11th of november 1975 um we've we can read that there was a, a letter that was published um that sir john sent to buckingham mm -hmm. palace and informing them that he has sat Gough Whitlam and stating that he did not inform the palace in advance uh, because under the constitution the responsibility is his all right and he he says that it was of um, his opinion that it was better for her majesty not to know in advance okay so that sounds pretty all above board um, but it's a bit of toing and froing that goes on before he sends this letter on the 11th of November that makes us think that maybe maybe they might have had some inklings going on in Buckingham Palace. And is, is, have we kind of suspected this before the publication of these or is this something entirely new now we know this backstory? I think this has possibly come as a bit of a surprise um, to people. Uh, and I think um, what it did, however, come as no surprise was Whitlam's, um, sorry, uh, Sir John Kerr's admission that um, the reason that he did act 
was because he feared that he would be sacked himself right. if okay. Whitlam had got yep. to the Queen first yep. and by convention advised her that the Governor-General was was no longer the best person to be in that position. Mm. So he does admit that in a letter um, about over a week after the dismissal that um, he had to act without giving uh, Gough Whitlam any chance to call an election because he was worried that if he had told Gough that he was going to sack him, that Gough would have gone straight to the Queen and uh, Sir John would have ended up sacked instead. So, um, look, there had been a bit of discussion between uh, Sir John Kerr and the Queen's private secretary, Martin Charteris, um, and there are a couple of probably concerning quotes um, that the Queen's private secretary does uh, write in some letters to Sir John Kerr. Um, Sir Martin wrote to uh, Sir John on the 4th of November that I think you are playing the vice-regal hand with skill and wisdom. It's a compliment, isn't it? Very, very much so. Uh, and um, he also noted the fact you have powers is recognised, but it's also clear you will only use them in the last resort and then only for constitutional and not for political reasons. Mm -hmm. Now, the Jenny Hocking has noted in some... Um, commentary on this that the biggest issue with this um, discussion of these reserve powers is the admission that they exist and that it is right for the governor general to potentially use them because remember I said earlier the governor the constitutional convention surrounds the use of these reserve powers it's not explicitly stated mm -hmm. we can't um, we're not we can't be certain about which powers of the governor general are reserved and which are not so Probably the biggest takeaways or issues in terms of, um, of what these letters reveal are um, that discussion of the use of reserve powers, but also the fact that a half-Senate election had been proposed by Whitlam a number of times in order to kind of fix this stalemate, um, but there is not a lot of discussion of that in the letters. Okay. Um, so, look, I think probably um, Jenny Hocking said it best when she says in her um, analysis of all this is that, and missing from it all is the one critical question which Kerr never answers and Charteris never asks, what does your Prime Minister say? Ultimately, Constitutional Convention dictates that Whitlam should have been providing advice to Kerr and to the palace throughout all of this and that, and that Whitlam should have been the person that was calling the shots, so to speak, not Kerr. All right. It wouldn't be a podcast without some discussion of of uh, U.S. politics, particularly the Donald. The Donald. Uh, what has the Donald done now? Okay, so this this decision or this tweet, as as we know, um, was fired out um, minutes after the data came out uh, showing that the economy, the annualized U.S. economy, was going to be down nearly thirty three percent. And he basically said, look, this is a, a huge issue, but I'll fix it. Um, and he floated the idea of delaying the 2020 election. So we know that the 2020 election is in about 80-something days. Um, and he basically said that we should push this back and, and push it maybe into 2021. He didn't actually give a specific. And he put um, that in his, his official 
uh, Twitter. In that, his, yes. That's the yes. official government mouthpiece. Exactly, exactly. Now, um, as, as president, is that something he can do? Well, no, the, and this is it. This is the issue. So according to uh, the American Constitution, uh, unlike our elections, their elections are set. Uh, and they are set, uh, let me just double check exactly what it says, um, they are set, presidential elections are scheduled by law to take place on the first Tuesday after the 1st of, of November, um, every every fourth year, that is. Um, now, crucially, So hold on, I think it's first Tuesday after the first Monday. It says here, okay, yes. president, first Tuesday after the first... Monday. After the first Monday. Oh, sorry, the, and this year it will be the third. Okay, yep. Yeah. Now... What I found interesting in, in looking at this was that the presidential elections um, have never, ever been uh, postponed. They've never, ever been pushed back. Um, they've never allowed for a delay in holding an election, even during the Civil War. Well, I so, think they were probably pretty busy then. Exactly. There were some so pretty if you serious can, times. Yeah, and that's it. So if you, can, if you can vote during the Civil War, then you can vote in a time of economic uh, crisis uh, and crucially from all of this from from looking at the legality of this uh, proposal um, only Congress could actually change the timing of the election um, and with Democrats having control of the House of Reps and and uh, the Republicans in the Senate um, the, the the chances are that it's not going to happen and even one of um, uh, Mr. Trump's most uh, vocal supporters, uh, Senate a Republican leader uh, Mitch McConnell basically said uh, it's not happening. Uh, never in the history of the country through wars, depressions and the Civil War have we ever not had federally scheduled elections on time. So it's not going to happen for the Donald. Well, do you know what the obvious answer is? Postal voting. Absentee voting. Well, I think the Donald has already had his opinion on that and he's not a fan not a fan. Now, with the 2020 election looming, uh, excitingly this week, Biden finally nominated his um, his VP uh, to, to go on his ticket, and it was none other than Kamala Harris. And um, what do we know about Kamala Harris, Mr. Clark O'Reilly? What do we know about her? Um, so I don't think it, I don't think it shocked that many political commentators when they announced or when Biden announced that he was going to select Kamala Harris. And if you think back, I think the first time she kind of came to national prominence was back in 2012 when she gave a very well received speech at the DNC uh, conference. Um, back when uh, Barack Obama was kind of running for his second term, and she kind of gave one of the keynote addresses. Um, but she goes back, I mean, she, she kind of um, cut her teeth, as it were, as, uh, I think it's the district attorney um, uh, for, for San Francisco. Um, and she was she kind of held that role from, I think, about 2003. Uh, and at the time, I think San Francisco had one of the, or the San Francisco area, which I could be wrong saying it includes places like Oakland with a very, very high murder rate had one of the highest homicide rates um, in the United States. And she basically came to prominence as this kind of tough on crime um, district attorney. Um, and she saw the felony 
uh, conviction rate go up from about 50% to about 75-76%. And she was re-elected um, four years later. Um, in 2010, she won the statewide election to become the Attorney General of California, um, being re-elected in 2014. Um, and she was a, a, a rising star within the within the DNC. Um, and she obviously was a, a, a presidential uh, contender mm -hmm. up until she dropped out uh, last year uh, and has basically kind of uh, positioned herself now to be, uh, you know, I suppose the, kind of the first choice running mate. And I think she ticks a lot of boxes for, for Biden. Uh, and he obviously made that campaign pledge that he would uh, nominate uh, a running mate um, who was a, was a woman for the first time. And I suppose, um, interestingly, she is the first woman of colour to appear on a major party ticket. Yes. So, yes. Uh, and I think she's the is she's is she the first Democratic uh, candidate as a female? Because obviously, if we think back to Sean McCain and and Sarah Palin, Alaskan Sarah Palin. Yes. Um, no, there was uh, one before that. So uh, Geraldine Ferraro um, was a female VP nominee in 1984. Mm. Uh, could not tell you who the Democrat nominee was, but they both lost um, that election. So we haven't had a woman or, or a female VP on the ticket in a in a winning combination. So mm. uh, hopefully it would it'd be great to see Kamala Harris break that trend Absolutely. With, with Biden. Um, and, you know, I suppose I'm sure they've had to to do the numbers and try to, try to look at whether... You know, who the best um, candidate would be to, to pop on the ticket and whether it was Harris or Elizabeth Warren mm. or you know any other number of um, Democratic women that would have been um, excellent VP candidates. Um, because if you think about the, the, the strategy behind picking your running mate, um, you know, Biden is looking at Kamala Harris to pick up the two uh, kind of, you know, he needs to win over basically white voters uh, and non-voters, um, and and I think that this notion of picking somebody that can appeal to a broad range of spectrum, uh, you know, goes back to we think of the days of, of when Kennedy was running and picking uh, Lyndon Johnson to basically win over the kind of the Southern conservative mm. elements. Uh, so this is nothing new with picking no. someone who is a strategically um, viable pick. Um, and and, I think and indeed, that, Obama did the same with Biden as his VP on the ticket. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, Biden was seen as, I suppose, a bit of a regular Joe, regular Joe from a working class upbringing. So he he was there to bring in uh, the working a class counter, a yes. counter to sometimes how Obama was. Yes. So mm. um, look, Harris. I think who, who do you think he's targeting um, by by putting Harris on the ticket? Then, well, I would. <laughs> I would think that he's looking to try and target, um, you know, swing Republican voters um, who didn't feel comfortable voting, uh, who don't feel comfortable voting for Trump this time, but didn't feel comfortable uh, supporting uh, Clinton at the last election. Um, and they want someone who is going to be tough on crime. I think that is just, an, just such an important element when anyone goes to the polls, but Americans especially seem to kind of gravitate towards these candidates that promise, you know, tough on crime. If I think back to the UK, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. We think to Reagan in the 80s, the notion of the war on drugs or Nixon and, and, and then Reagan after that, the war on drugs. 
Kamala Harris has the credentials as somebody who has tackled violent felony crime, um, not without controversy uh, in in San Francisco. Um, but I think she will be able to pick up uh, those kind of marginal voters and those kind of swing voters who who just can't bring themselves to vote for Trump. Well, it'll be interesting to see how she fares in November. Absolutely. off today um probably not really a good news story but uh it's relevant to some things we've uh, discussed in previous podcasts is um the arrest of pro-democracy media tycoon jimmy lai in hong kong uh so they were arrested under the the new law um that uh, or the new national security law that that china imposed in june uh that was essentially designed to make dissent all but impossible in hong kong um, so what are some of the, the band acts under this yeah, new and law? I, yeah, and I think that it's it's important to kind of go back to that stuff that we looked at previously and, and remember that there's just such a long list of things that could, um, you know, that could lead you to being arrested under this new law. So some of them would be collaborating with a foreign entity um, to impose sanctions on the Hong Kong uh what what actually constitutes collaborating with a foreign entity is fairly vague. Um, you've got seriously disrupting the making of laws or policies, illegal, uh, provoking hatred of the government. And I think that's the one that most people would take, you know, exception with because, you know, how on earth can you, um, how, how, how can you kind of charge someone for, provoking hatred in the government. I mean, and, and what constitutes that? So I think it's a, a hugely, hugely worrying piece of legislation that, that, that has passed. And completely undermines, I suppose, those those democratic principles. And when we think about year 11 and 12 syllabus, you know, in year 11, you look at um, a comparison of one democratic and one non-democratic country. Um, and I would imagine that this has really impacted Hong Kong. Well, it, it's impacted Hong Kong's standing around the world in terms of a kind of a haven of, or a bastion of kind of free speech and democ- or elements of democracy. Um, do we have anything to kind of... Yeah, look, I mean, they, they've they traditionally enjoyed a, a very vibrant free press. Um, and, you know, in 2002, so 18 years ago, they were ranked 18th in the inaugural World Press Freedom Index. Um, but yeah, 18 years later, they're now down to 80. So um, plunged in the figures, um, China. Have, yeah, I was going to say, do we know where China kind of sits on that? Yeah, well, they they rank at 177 out of 180 countries. So um, still, still, Hong Kong's still theoretically doing a lot better than those in China. But um, it is, I think, very worrying. Um, but for year 11 and 12 students, very relevant to their syllabus. Thanks for joining us today on another episode of Crossing the Floor. I'm Mr. Clark O'Reilly. And I'm Miss Pepper. And the link to my Twitter as well as the syllabus points covered today can be found as usual in the show notes.